Good morning. He is risen. Amen. If you need a Bible, raise your hand, and these guys will be glad to give you one. Take your Bibles and or your handheld devices and turn to Matthew chapter 26. We're going to be in Matthew the whole time. We've got some other verses we'll look at on the screen, but on your outline. But you'll turn to Matthew 26. We will start there. Anytime you look forward to, as a pastor, sharing on Easter Sunday, it's an interesting yet uh, sometimes difficult dynamic to figure out what exactly is it that, that I want to say. And in prayer, what exactly is it, Lord, you want me to share? So notice the top of your handout. It says, for God so loved. And the, what led me to that was in looking at a lot of things in the series that we've been doing over the last couple of months about the fact truth matters and what we believe is significant because there are answers. We looked at the fact that how do you know there's a God? How do you know you could trust the Bible? How do, how do you know that what we believe is true? Leading up to what we celebrate today, that Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the human being, Jesus, the son of Joseph and Mary, that historical person was the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Savior, God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, that he was the unique person of history. As Beth mentioned a moment ago, this that we celebrate today is the most significant moment in the history of the human race when God came to redeem he came to die in the flesh as the perfect sinless sacrifice, and then he rose from the dead. Not euphemistically, not in our hearts, but physically rose from the dead, and that is significant. What happens a lot of times on Easter Sunday, I've done it, and other pastors are doing it right now, we'll do it throughout the day, is a lot of guys will, and, and believe me, it's important, and I do not trivialize that. Go into the height of the proofs that you know Jesus rose from the dead. We could do that, but we're not going to. And if you do not believe that he physically rose from the dead and you'd like to talk with me about that, I would love to sit and talk with you whenever you would like to. Because, as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ is not risen, we are still in our sins. If Christ is not risen, what we preach is a lie. If Christ is not risen, what we do is worthless. If Christ is not risen, we have no hope. And then that incredible verse, 1 Corinthians 15, 20, but now Christ is risen. And it's become the first fruits of those who fall asleep. So I know as a believer in Jesus Christ, as Christians, the reason this moment is so significant, there are a number of them. But I know that when I pass away, I will rise again. I will be with the Lord Jesus Christ forever. After, from the body, is present with the Lord. And I'll get a new resurrected body because he was the first fruits. He came out of that tomb. The first fruits simply was a celebration, a harvest celebration of the reaping to come. And we, the church, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, are the harvest. And the reason we exist, we will see today, 
is to share with our world Christ is risen. This is not our religious option. This is not the choice that we've made. It is truth. And what does truth do? Set you free. And so what I want to focus on today is how much, notice again, the top of your handout, for God so loved. That's the message of Easter. Most all of us have memorized John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he what? Gave. What did he give? He gave his only begotten son, the unique son of all history. And it means preeminent one over everything else that through faith in him we might have life. For God so loved. If you get nothing else out of what we talk about today, and this was where God led me in praying about this, and that's one part of the reason we did the series we did leading up to this point where we talk about the fact, we, who is Jesus Christ? We've talked about that. We know that it's true. And what does it mean to me? So here's what I want you to take away from today, if nothing else. For God so loved you. You. That's the message of Easter. He loved the entire human race. But the reason Randy Lockley celebrates is that he loved me. He changed me. He gave me eternal life. He gave me peace. He gave me hope. He gave me a reason for existence. He gives me joy in the midst of difficult circumstances. He gives me life in his name. And then I get to share that with other people. Those two points, he loved you, and then he said to you, now go tell other people that. Share that with others. For God so loved you. That's how significant you are, that Christ is risen. He saved you if you're born again, and then he's given you a special ministry to share that with the world. The history we're going to look at from Gethsemane to the crucifixion, to the resurrection, that historical moment. I spoke at a church here in town this week at their Maundy Thursday service. You think about the agony of that night leading to the horrific torture of the next day when it looks like Satan has won. That goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15 where, where God said to Satan, after original sin, he said, the seed of the woman will crush your head. You will bruise his heel. He will crush your head. And the bruising took place at Calvary. The crushing took place Easter Sunday morning. Now let's look at that. Let's begin with Matthew 26. And I want us to start with, historically, I want you to see this. I think it's so significant and I hope it encourages you, I hope it challenges you, and I hope I can get through this without crying because it means so much to me as a believer. Number one, the agony of the crucifixion. The agony of the crucifixion. And we're not even going to talk about exactly what crucifixion means. We'll hit it. We're not going to go into the details because I want to do something else. Number one, I want to start with the loneliness of Gethsemane. The loneliness of that moment Turn to Matthew 26 and follow along, starting in verse 36. 26, 36. Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to the disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. 
And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, his inner circle, Peter, James, and John. They were always with Jesus at his most significant moments. And he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. And he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little farther and he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping and he said to Peter, What? You could not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time, he went away and he prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me, unless I drink it, your will be done. I want you to see, and I think this may be the most significant thing that I say today over the next few moments, understanding he rose from the dead, the most important thing. But I want you to see the loneliness of this moment. Throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, if you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, especially John, you'll see them come to Jesus and say, they, they thought, if you're the Messiah, even his own siblings in John 7, if you're the Messiah, go up to Jerusalem and announce it and take over and set up the kingdom. And over and over and over again, you see Jesus saying that three-year period of time, his earthly ministry, my hour is not yet come. My hour is not yet come. My kingdom is not of the, this earth. My kingdom is from heaven. I am the sent one. My hour is not yet come. Then you get to John 13 on Monday, Thursday. You get to John 13, 1 in the upper room at the Last Supper. And it begins this way. John 13, 1. Jesus, knowing that his hour had come. It was time. The most significant moment in the history of the human race began that Thursday night. It ended that Sunday morning. His hour had come. Now, please don't miss this. That hour was not just, okay, I've been here two or three years now, and it's time to go do what I came to do. Yes, that's true. But when he says, my hour has come, what he's referring to is the eternal plan of redemption that he told Adam and Eve and Satan about in the Garden of Eden, the plan he had known forever. He is God. And here's what he says, my hour has come. My hour. The loneliness of this moment. I alone have come to this hour because I alone can redeem. I alone can go to the cross and it be significant. I alone can go to the cross and it be the propitiation, the satisfaction of God's demand of justice for sin. I alone can do that. His hour had come. He is alone. He doesn't have the huge crowds following him and, and just wanting to touch the hem over his garment. He doesn't have people clamoring just to be around him and hear him. He's alone. Even though he's got Peter, James, and John right there with him, he is alone. What's fascinating in so many ways, the word Gethsemane, and I've been to the Garden of Gethsemane in Israel. There are olive trees there that were there 2,000 years ago. The word Gethsemane means press. It's where they pressed the olives the greatest, most intense pressure the Son of God had ever faced was at this moment, and it's in the Garden of Pressure. Isn't that beautiful? God's saying something to you. The Garden of Gethsemane, where you're pressed, and everything that's in you comes out. 
He's come to the garden of pressure. He is alone. And the word means stressed to the max. His purpose. Why is he here? Notice his prayer in verse 42. He's agonizing over the cup. Here's what he says. Is there, is there another way? Twice he prays this. Twice. Please do not miss this. He prays if there's another way. And it's not the cup of being crucified, even though that was horrific. It was the cup of taking Randy Lockley's sin debt on his back, of taking your sin debt on his back, of taking the sin debt of every human being that's ever walked planet Earth since Adam or Will. The fact that that price that had to be paid for that sin was being placed on the perfect, sinless Son of God for God so loved you, me, the world. You read in the other Gospels, as he's here, as he's agonizing, as he's praying, Father, is there, if there's another way that we could do this, let this cup pass from me, how does he end his prayer? Not my will, but yours. If nothing else, you learn something about prayer at this moment, don't you? The significance of all prayer is, Father, when Jesus taught him how to pray, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be whose name, mine or yours? Yours, Father. Not my will, but yours. He's teaching us, even in this moment. When you read in the other Gospels about the pressure that he's under, it tells us that the pressure was so significant, the emotional strain was so powerful, he sweat blood. Hematidrosis. He literally had blood coming out of his capillaries because of the cup that he was going to bear that was my sin debt. I owed it. Jesus didn't. That's why he could do it. That's why he alone could do it. He also says in this moment, not in Gethsemane, but as he goes through this process, as he's hanging on the cross, just about to die, he says, quoting from Psalms, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Again, incredibly significant. Because for no other time in the history of the universe and prior to the universe existing had God the Son ever called God the Father, God, what are you always calling? Father, Father, Father. But at that moment as he was paying the sin debt, God had had to turn his back on him because he can't allow sin in his presence. And Jesus knew from the moment the agony of every, the guilt of every sin ever committed. He said, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then just before he dies, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Do you see the loneliness? Do you see it? Do you see how much he loved you? how much you love me, how much you love the people you work with, your family members, anyone you might have a chance to share the word of God with, how much Jesus Christ loved them. The Apostle Paul put it this way, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. What is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He paid my debt, it is finished. 
what he said. He paid it because I couldn't. No amount of good works or deeds was going to pay that debt. Jesus paid it because he loved me. Secondly, beyond the loneliness, I want you to see the love of Golgotha. Look at Matthew 27, 26. 27, 26. Golgotha simply means place of the skull. Also, we would call it Calvary. As Jesus is taken to the place of the skull, it's on a public highway. The Romans crucified the people, their thieves and the criminals. They crucified. They did it on a public thoroughfare. So everyone that would pass by would say, whoa, 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 I'm not going to mess with Rome. So I put Jesus on a public thoroughfare next to the two thieves to crucify him. And I want you to see the love of that cross at Golgotha. Verse 26 of chapter 27. Then he released Barabbas to them. Notice the verbs as we read through this. He releases Barabbas, a hardened criminal they chose over Jesus. When he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. They released Barabbas, a thief who deserved to die. They scourged Jesus, just one note. Get a chance? Study what scourging meant. Well, let me just tell you briefly. It meant he was whipped, beaten to the point that his vital organs were exposed. Romans were really good at beating people, at torturing people. They beat you just to the point he was still alive. And then, it's notice, he delivers him up to be crucified after that beating. If you read closely and follow all the accounts, he was also beaten to the point in his face that you did not recognize him. If you knew him, that's a pretty severe beating, isn't it? Why did Jesus allow that? For God so loved. So he scourges him delivers him to be crucified. The soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. It's about 600 soldiers. So now they've, they've beaten him. They've scourged him. They're taking him to be crucified. There's about 600 soldiers around him. Now notice the verbs in verse 28. They stripped him. They put a scarlet robe on him. I bet that felt good on that back after being scourged, huh? They put that on him. They twisted a crown of thorns and they, they put it into his head. They put a reed in his right hand. They bowed the knee before him. They mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They beat him. They scourge him. They put thorns on his head. They, get, they bow down before him. They put a robe on him. They're mocking him. This is God himself. Mocking him as the King of the Jews. Verse 30, they spit on him. They took the reed and they struck him on the head. When they had mocked him some more, they took the robe off him, ripping it off now as the blood is soaked into it, ripping it off. I'm sure that felt well as also. They put his own clothes on him, and they led him away to be crucified. Let's drop down to verse 39. Those who passed by blasphemed him. He's hanging on the cross, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking with the scribes and the elders said, he saved others himself. He cannot save. If he is a king of Israel, let him come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now if he will, ha if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. 
Now notice verse 44. This is really shows you the message of the day. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. You see that? Please don't miss that. Well, we've heard about the thief on the cross. Notice in that verse, the thieves on either side are also mocking him. Just like everybody else. The crowd going by, the soldiers, the chief priests, and even the thieves on either side are mocking him. But we know from further accounts, in a few moments, or within a few hours, one of those thieves turns to Jesus and says what? Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Even as Jesus is hanging on the cross, having been beaten to the edge of death, being tortured to death, he is ministering to people. Do you see that? For God, so that guy had been mocking him, saying, like the others, if you are God, the other thief said, if you are God, why don't you save yourself and us? And then one of the thieves would have said to hit the other thief, he realizes we deserve to be here. He doesn't. And then he says to Jesus, and what was Jesus' incredible response to him? Today, because you're going to die. Today, you'll be with me where? In paradise. Today. Jesus saves him as he's dying for the sins of him, the other thief, everyone else in the world, me and you. Such a message there. You can revile and reject, or you can respond to Jesus. He was reviling and rejecting as he's hanging there. But before he dies, he trusts Christ. He says, I, I believe you're who you said you were. Would you remember me? Would you save me? And Jesus does. He doesn't get off the cross and do anything. He doesn't go to church. He didn't give any money. He didn't get baptized. He didn't dress up. He didn't do anything. What did he do? He trusted Jesus because Jesus was who he said he was. For God so loved, as he's hanging there, the agony of the crucifixion. And in verse 45, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness all over the land. From noon to three, the land goes completely dark. Again, fascinating when you understand history. Here's the picture. Jesus is the Passover lamb. He's dying for the sins of the world. And you go back to the original Passover story in Exodus chapter 10. Before God sends the death angel, the last plague on Egypt, there are three days of darkness. You think it's an accident this is three hours? I don't. Here's what God is saying. Because the crowd was all Jewish, with the exception of the Romans. Here's what God is saying. For you Jews who are spitting on the Messiah, for you Jews who are having him crucified, for you Jews who had him beaten, for you Jews who are blaspheming him, just remember Passover because he is Passover. Remember, what's going on in Jerusalem as they're crucifying Jesus? They're celebrating Passover. He is the Passover lamb. He came in the, the previous Sunday, Palm Sunday, same day of the month, God set it up in Exodus 12. They watch him for four days like Exodus 12. They crucify him on Friday like Exodus 12. 
They killed the lamb. Jesus is the lamb. When John the Baptist, first time he saw Jesus, what did he say? Behold what? The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As he's hanging on the cross, God reminds them for three hours. Three hours. Judgment is here. Death is being judged. Sin is being paid for. Look at verse 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, that is my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And the Greek there means the most intense pain anyone can have. It's the curse of sin. I want you to note Philippians chapter 2. As Paul talks about this moment, notice what he writes, Philippians 2. Let this mind or attitude be in you which was in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. He is God. But he made himself, notice the verbs. He made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth. Every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here's what I want you to note from that incredible passage. He made himself of no reputation. He willingly went to the cross. He chose to become a man. He chose to allow himself to be tortured, discouraged. He could have done it any other way. But the message he was sending to us is, Somebody is going to have to pay for your sin. I will take your place. And I'll do it in the most excruciating way possible to say to you, I love you. I love you. And Isaiah, in a famous passage in his prophecy about the Messiah, says this. He's borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. By his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's exactly what's happening in this three hours of darkness. God is laying on him, he who knew no sin, became sin for us, we might become the righteousness of God in him. He loved you. Alone he went. The agony of that. Now turn to Matthew 28. And let's look at, we've seen the agony of the crucifixion. And now today we celebrate the victory of the resurrection. Because if he had not risen from the dead, he would simply have been just another religious nut who died. But he did rise from the dead. Look at Matthew 28, 1. After the Sabbath, it's the first day of the week began to dawn. That is extremely significant. This is Sunday. Please note that. 
Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow, and the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid. I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. As he said, Come, see the place where the Lord lay. Now let's hit the context for a minute before we move on. Jesus was crucified. His followers are distraught. They're in agony. Pretty much they think it's over with. They thought he was the Messiah. He was going to set up the kingdom. Now he's dead. When they came to this tomb on Sunday morning, it's called Preparation Day, they came to anoint a corpse. Read Mark and Luke. They were carrying what they needed, the oils and everything they needed to prepare a dead body. And when they get there, what do they find? An empty tomb. An empty tomb. Why was the church so powerful after the day of Pentecost? Because they believed the resurrection. They believed the resurrection. Prior to that, Peter, we're going back fishing. I guess it's over. Apparently he wasn't the Messiah after all. They came to anoint a corpse, the women. That was their job. Notice, no men, it's the women. Read all the accounts. Be excited about your Savior. So much you see there. No hope, no faith. You read the other accounts, they say things like, who's going to move the stone for us when we get there? If these stones over the crypt, who's going to move the stone so we can go in and anoint the body? They didn't expect it to be rolled away. They didn't expect Jesus to be gone. They expected to find a corpse and anoint the body. So, what's the empty tomb mean? You go in again, read the other accounts. You see no sign of a struggle. You don't see the clothes. They're neatly placed aside, even the cloth on his face, folded up the napkin and laid there. The stone is gone. Earlier in his ministry, Jesus had said these words. Therefore, my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. Notice the verbs. I may take it again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. He told them that. He told them that over and over again. They came to anoint a dead body. But if there wasn't a dead body in that tomb, as he got up, rolled the stone away, and walked out to validate himself. That's the main point. The empty tomb is the validation of Jesus Christ that he is the Christ. To this day, that empty tomb is the most significant moment in the history of the world. Because if he did not walk out of that tomb, he's just another religious leader. But he did. It validates him as the Messiah. It validates him as the fulfillment of Scripture, the first fruits of resurrection, the judge of all, the high priest in heaven now, our hope, our God over all, our assurance, our joy, our peace, our inheritance. Because... Christ is risen. Now, what does all that mean? We believe that. We say we believe that. 
I want you to notice on your handout a couple of things and we're done. Because anytime you study the Bible, you need to come to this point. Okay, Randy, that's cool. Now what am I going to do with that? Well, God says you, that's your ministry. That's your ministry. You have the ministry of reconciliation. That is our job. Number three on your handout, the ministry of reconciliation through Jesus' blood, through Jesus' body. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, what are the two elements? His blood and his body. He gave his body for us. He shed his blood that we could be forgiven because only his blood can do that. So what does that mean? Look at Colossians 1 on your handout. By him, Jesus, to reconcile all things to himself. By him, whether things on earth, things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. You, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you. Notice, through his body, through his blood, you could be reconciled and presented to God this way, holy, blameless, and above reproach in the sight of God. Only through the blood and the body of Jesus Christ can that happen in a human being's life. Notice how it's put. By him, that's the crucifixion and the resurrection. To himself, he reconciles. Note, through the, through the crucifixion, the body, the blood, he reconciles the human race back to himself through the blood. Reconcile is very simple. It means to restore a previous relationship. God created Adam and Eve and placed them in paradise. They lost paradise when they sinned. Paradise lost. Jesus came, the second Adam, died on the cross to buy that back. Where did he tell the thief you will be? Today you'll be with me where? Paradise. Adam and Eve lost it. Jesus bought it back. Through faith in him, we could be reconciled, be restored to right standing with God, at peace with God through the blood of Jesus Christ. We were alienated, estranged, isolated. We were his enemies. We had an attitude toward him of active hostility. I don't need God. I'm God. We may not say that, but that's the way we live our lives by and large. And then our wicked works, that's simply the result of that attitude. We're alienated from God. We've got an attitude toward God, and the result is what we do. Because we're sinners, we live our lives for ourselves. God has reconciled us in the goal. Galatians 2, the Bible says, He disarmed principalities, powers, and He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. I love that phrase. Paul says He made a public spectacle of them. He mentioned a moment ago, when they took Jesus, they took Him to Golgotha, and they crucified Him on that hill on a public thoroughfare so everybody could see. And then the Holy Spirit led Paul to write, yeah, but Jesus made a public spectacle of them. They thought they were making a public spectacle of Jesus, but he made a public spectacle of them. By doing what? By rising from the dead. They thought they won. Satan thought he won, but then Sunday came. Sunday came. And history was changed. So many ways. I mentioned Sunday earlier. Just a quick note. The early church was almost exclusively Jewish, and all they had ever known 
for worship was the Sabbath. And on what day did they do that? Saturday. But after Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday, when did they start worshiping? What is today? Sunday. Why do we worship on Sunday? Because they came to the tomb on the first day of the week, which is Sunday, and they found what? An empty tomb. We celebrate. We worship all the time. I realize that. We come together corporately like this on Sunday as a reminder of how significant the resurrection is. So finally, notice what we are. One of my favorite passages of the Bible is 2 Corinthians 5. We are ambassadors for Christ. God so loved you, and now he's given you a job. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. All things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. We, then, believers, are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Here's my point. I hope if nothing else, if nothing else, when you understand the significance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, if you're a Christian, it motivates you to share the fact for God so loved. I'm going to tell you a story and then we're going to pray together. Years ago, a young pastor in his 40s got up before his congregation and there was an elderly gentleman with him on the platform, and he got up and he said, before I preach tonight, I'd like, this is an old friend from my childhood, I'd like him to share with you for just a moment. So the elderly gentleman comes up to the podium and he, he tells them this story. He said, years ago, there was a man who was going to go sailing off the Pacific coast in the ocean. And he took his son and one of his son's best friends with him, a young man, he took, takes him out, sailboat, and the man was a, a, an accomplished sailor. He's very good. But a storm came up just quickly and they were going to be swamped and he realized the boat was being swamped and he had a lifeline. The two boys are in the water. He said, I've got to throw the line to one of them. I don't know which because I can't throw it to both. He said, I know my son is a believer. And I know he'll be with Jesus. He throws the rope to his son's friend. The son's friend, the man survived. The son is washed away and they never find his body. There were two kids sitting on the front row as the old man's telling his story and they're starting out, they're laughing and mocking a little bit, and giggling. He gets about halfway through the story and they're mesmerized. They come up to him afterwards and said, that's a nice story, but there is no way anybody could do that. Let their son die and, and let someone else live. The man said, well, Jesus did that for you. He said, but let me tell you something else. You're right, it, it seems incredible, but I am the man who threw the rope. And your pastor is my son's friend. See, this is serious stuff. Everybody's going to die. He knew his son was going to go to heaven. Now, can I tell you Randy Lockley would do that? I don't know. I can't tell It'd be hard, wouldn't it? 
But I do know this, for God so loved me, he sent Jesus. And Jesus rose from the dead and set me free. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, what a great day to get saved. Easter Sunday. Raise a new life in Christ. If you are born again, take it seriously. Pray for people. Share the fact God loved them so much. Don't be afraid of their questions. God wants them to ask the questions. Even if you don't know the answer, you can find it. You bow your heads, please. Father, we pause again before you as the one God who is there. Everybody has a God, but you are the God who is there. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you most significantly today for his resurrection, that because he rose from the dead, we have hope, we have peace. Christ is risen. We're not still in our sins. We're not miserable. We're not to be pitied. We have life. I pray that for all of us as believers, we'd be excited about our life, we'd be excited about Jesus Christ, and we would share him with other people. And Lord, if there's one person seated here who's not born again, they would say to Jesus, like the thief on the cross, Lord, would you remember me? I, I need to be saved. Forgive me like you forgave that thief, like you forgave Randy, like you've for, forgiven many here. Forgive me. Save me. I want to be born again. We commit this time to you, Lord, in Jesus' name.